to work hard, spread lace to you, I'll tell of how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello everyone, my name is Matt Wilgress and I'm delighted to welcome you to this first Angles Lecture presented by Rise, a festival of left ideas, the left's largest online event platform alongside LabourOutlook.org, the most regularly updated and shared website on Labour's Left. Um, please do support both these platforms today and donate £20 or what you can afford at the link provided to both cover the cost of this lecture and help us put on more Angles Lectures hopefully in the future. Um, the aim of these lectures is to build on the socialist political education work we and others have been doing in recent years and learn the lessons of the past in order to win our struggles today. Um, the topic of our lecture today is the condition of the working class today, and it's inspired by this month marking 180 years since Engels started researching his classic work on that theme. It will be presented by John Trickett, who has been the Member of Parliament for Hemsworth since 1996, representing former minor communities in the heart of Yorkshire. Um, John left school at 15 and worked in the building trade before going to university where he studied under the legendary Ralph Miliband. Prior to being elected as an MP, John had been a councillor and council leader in Leeds. He has also served in Labour front benches under Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband and most recently Jeremy Corbyn, in whom shadow cabinet he served in a number of roles, including national campaign coordinator. In terms of our host today, John is also a regular speaker at our Rise Festival events and a monthly columnist for LabourOutlook.org. Just a quick note that we will be taking some questions at the end of the lecture, so please put them in the Q&A box, as well as telling us where you're tuning in from and we'll do some shout outs as well. Without any further ado, uh, John, it's over to you. It's great to see so many people here. Matt, thank you very much. All of your volunteers are really, really helpful. It's good to see so many people. I think we've had quite a lot of interest, 500 people or more, who are interested in socialist ideas, history, and how they impact on how we see the world. And it is important because every day there is a battle of what I call the battle for hearts and minds for ideas. And we can be confident we have uh, the correct kind of analysis, but we need to continually win that battle since we're always under attack. Now, um, what we're going to do is I'm going to do a lecture of about 40 minutes or so. We've got we're going to be accompanied with a series of slides. And I'm going to ask them to go on the screen now. And whilst we're doing that, I just want to say I will use the, the, the words working class quite a lot. I want to use the words working class to mean everybody who works for a living, unless I specifically say it's the industrial working class or so on. You'll get the message as we go through it. The other thing is, you know, if you're speaking about angles, you can't avoid a little bit of philosophy for those whose eyes glaze over when I get onto that, do just um, just do bear with me. I think it will make sense as I go through the relative uh, the respective parts to do with that. Now, if we're ready to start, which I think we are, um, my first point is this: if you Google the words "left behind communities." You will, in less than a second, find 320 million entries which contain those words left behind. And too often, when you read the words of the of the commentators in the national media, the right wing media, the establishment and so on, you might arrive at the idea that working communities are left behind, that they're passive. They have things done to them on their behalf that in some ways Working people are in need of assistance in the face of their own victimhood. Well, look, I resent that idea. Working class people are not left behind, nor are the various groups who compose the class, whether it's their gender, sexuality, race, whether they earn a wage or a salary and so on and so forth. No, they're not left behind. They're held back. And I'm going to try to uh, talk about working class agency throughout this lecture, which is what really I think Engels makes me think about. Let's be honest, it suits the British establishment to, to suggest that the wider population is somehow passive. 
And so this central thought will run through all my reflections on the work of the great polymath, Frederick Engels. But let me start with an anecdote. I'm going to tell a series of stories uh, through this lecture. I hope they'll make sense and, and provide a narrative thread. But the first anecdote is this. I vividly recall many years ago now, one day passing through that area in the Palace of Westminster between the House of Commons and I was on the way to Portcullis House. I literally um, bumped into Robin Cook, who was ambling gently between one part of Westminster and another. Well, we stopped for what I thought would be a brief chat near the underground exit, which leads through into Westminster Tube Station. Now, I can't do a Scottish accent, so I'm not even going to try. But Robin said to me, look, come back to my office. There's a few things I'd like to discuss with you. So we went back to that rather grand office, which he had, looking out over the River Thames, and which is now occupied by, by my good friend Ian Lavery MP. Well, our conversation, it lasted almost two hours. And there were matters which we disagreed on, Robin and I. But the striking thing, which Robin said, was that he had begun counting the numbers of places of work in the United Kingdom outside of the public sector, like the hospitals and the universities and so on, which employ more than a thousand workers on a single site. And he said that he reckoned that the number of sites with more than a thousand workers was no more than a dozen or, or a dozen and a half. But their importance had been that they were in many ways the nurseries in which the British Labour movement and the party, the trade unions, had been born. And what he said, I'll never forget it, what he said, would Engels have made of that? Well, I still wonder about that question all these years later. Has the way in which work is now organised or transformed our social lives, that our capacity to act collectively has diminished and has thereby strangled off the possibility of building a better world? Now, before we turn to Engels and his contemporary relevance, just let me recall something of my own personal history for a moment. I left school with no meaningful qualifications at age 15. And although I went on later to go to university, my early work experiences before, but then after university, were in the building industry. But I was also a contractor working in some of the great clothing factories in Leeds. Now, we've more or less seen the end of the industrial age in Britain. But I was very lucky, in my view, I felt I feel very lucky to have experienced work in the factories at the end of the industrial age for Brit in Britain, just as Engels had been witness to the industrial age at its inception, and which provides so much information in his famous book. I'm going to show you this slide, um, which is a photo, uh, remarkable as it is, of the Burton's factory, Leeds. Montague Burton's factory, you'll see a huge crowd of people. This is a factory, and each woman is sitting behind a sewing machine or other device working to prepare the suits which Montague, Montague Burton's produced. Look at the scale of it. It was said that the canteen could serve 10,000 people in two shifts. The canteen itself was as large as they said, as two football pitches. It's quite remarkable. And the, the Burton's factory near where I lived and where my children were born, the scale is extraordinary. I live close by. The local community was dominated by that factory. The rhythms of our community life, the pubs, the clubs, the sports, and even the dates of the holidays, all were largely dictated by the workforce. The workers were employed by a single family, the Burton's. But, and this is... The point I'm getting to is when the union spoke with the collective voice of those 10,000 mainly women, the owners were forced to listen. And so the workers had a sense of agency, this central word, which I'm going to articulate throughout the lecture. The company was the largest multiple tailor in the world. And there was a kind of swagger about the workers who were employed by Burton, certainly a sense of pride. They were, but they were employed on terms and in conditions largely subordinate to the demands of the owners, and yet they were capable of making themselves heard. And so just thinking back for a second to this idea of workers are left behind, somehow passive, it's not my experience at all. And I was fortunate again in 1970, shows how old I am, <laughs> to see something remarkable happening. This is the front page of the local paper. 
the women in one factory decided that they wanted fair pay and they went on strike and the women clothing operators then what they then did was they effectively i think almost invented the system of flying pickets because they walked down to the next factory and all the women in that factory then came out on strike and one by one each factory closed until the whole industry and leeds was a big clothing center as i guess everybody knows was on the verge of being closed down entirely of course this event if it'd been in a more fashionable place maybe in london we might have heard more about it, but it was a dramatic moment, a sense when the workers in those factories took action. Uh, now, if we just quickly move forward in my personal history, you'll see there's a point to all of the uh, points I'm making here. I now represent uh, former mining communities. The mining in Yorkshire, the great Yorkshire coalfield, those mining communities, they weren't left behind. They were destroyed by Thatcher but they fought like titans for a year. And in the village where I live, it's a pit village, there was a colliery. It had two entries and ex exits, one in our village, and then there was an underground tunnel which linked us through to Featherstone, the next nearest village. But the interesting thing, or the point I want to make is this, that the union effectively controlled the bonus payments which the miners received and this was because the weighman who determined, who weighed how much coal had been extracted each day, was a union activist agreed by the management. The management preferred it that way, other than having the otherwise continual conflict over wages paid at the end of each week. And the pit villages were dominated by the miners and their families, just as it was in Leeds with Burton's, the sports teams, social clubs, brass bands, even who went to work down the pit. All of these bore the mark of the working class, the pit, the miners organized within the union. And here's an interesting thing for those who are interested in labor politics. It was they, more often than not, who would decide who the next labor candidate would be, whether it's for the council, the parish council, or as the MP. Incredible as it might now seem, the NUM delegates to the local Labour Party CLP would even select or elect reserve delegates in case somebody fell ill and couldn't, att couldn't attend the local general management committee. And there was a bitter contest for the election even to be a reserve. That is how hegemonic the working class was in the villages which I now represent. Let me just reflect one more story uh, from the pit villages I represent, a form of pit villages. A century ago, a fire broke out on the ground in one of the local collieries. The management were just prepared to leave the trap men underground behind the fire to die. Not the union. The local MP, John Guest, who was a miner, he was the first Labour MP for the era I now represent, put his mining clothes back on, led a team of volunteers underground into the fire, and he saved the men. Here's a photograph of him. We do really stand on the shoulders of giants. But as I as I, I said in my personal experience as a young working man, we did have a kind of agency. And you can see in the stories that I've been telling uh, all of this sense that people weren't simply just passively there, kind of languishing in misery. So I want to develop this idea throughout the lecture. And I want to use the word agency and we'll put a definition, my definition up as the capacity of human beings to effect change. But in a capitalist society, this freedom to act, the ability to effect change is limited, isn't it? Writing in the 1840s, um, as he was writing his book, Engels put it in terms which were prevalent at the time, so excuse the sexist language which we're about to see, but it's an important quote, it seems to me. The bourgeoisie, Engels writes, lets him, i.e. the worker, have the appearance of acting from a free choice of making contract with a free unconstrained consent as a responsible agent who has attained his majority. Find freedom, Engels says, where the worker, the proletarian, has no other choice than that of either accepting the conditions which the bourgeoisie offers him or of starving or freezing to death. 
and there Engels captures it. So let's continue for a moment, uh, just considering what Engels was doing. We'll move backwards and forwards through history as we do so. Engels came to, to the north of England in 1842. 1842 is a very important day, as we're going to see. And he was he went to, he went to work in a factory which was owned by his family. It's quite ironic when you consider his politics. But he wrote this very, very important book, The Condition of the Working Class in England. He was 22 years old when he came to Manchester, a German. And so quite an unfamiliar culture, I think. And his famous book, it's a prodigious piece of work written by a 24-year-old. We should never forget the achievement. And I'm just going to explain a little bit about how I see it and why I think it's relevant to contemporary days. And there are two aspects to, the, to, to Engels' background when he wrote the book. The first, and here we're going to come to philosophy, so excuse me, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, avoid it. We shouldn't. The first is Engels' intellectual universe. The second is the emergence of a powerful, independent working class movement in England, which we call the Chartists. Bear with me. Engels first engaged with the German philosopher Hegel. This is a photograph of him here. It's a bit of an ugly bugger. Anyway, uh, he's, he's, a, he's definitely a master of philosophy. Hegel died only 11 years before Engels arrived in Manchester. And then he engaged with the then Engels engaged with the critique which left Hegelians, so-called, and especially Feuerbach, launched against their master Hegel. But it's easy to understand. And just bear with me. You'll see where I'm going. To understand the huge excitement which Hegel had caused upon the student generation. What matters most from the point of view of today's discussion is Hegel's view that we can see human history as a dramatic fold, unfolding of ideas over time, moving ever closer to higher forms of human reason and civilization. But there's a problem, something's not right about Hegel, and we need a better explanation for how history, how history, historical progress changes. And Engels took hold of the Hegelian model, but then in search of a human agency, which explains how history actually unfolds, he identified the working class. Let me put that there for a minute. And now let me turn quickly then to what else was happening in Hegel's life as he arrived in Manchester. Because the Chartists were on the move. 1842 is a major high point. And they were a mass working class movement. The scale of that Chartist movement has never been reproduced in Britain to this day. So, Engels arrives at the high point in the Chartist. Let me just show you the official account, which is you can find about the Chartist on the House of Commons website. I'm going to, it's an extensive quotation, but I think it's worth just going through it. Despite social media and new technology, the 21st century has yet to surpass Chartism in the organization passion sheer numbers brought to petitioning. 1842, remember this is the year when Engels arrives, was the biggest. It's staggering 3.3 million signatures, which is, was a third of the population at that time, means that it remains the largest single petition ever laid before Parliament. But the next part uh, we're going to turn, we're going to look at now is a description of what happened when the petition arrived in the House of Commons. Because the idea of laying this petition, this huge petition, 3.3 million people being laid in the Commons rather understates what actually happened. Sheets of signature from all over Britain were stitched into a single roll of paper. It weighed 600 weight. Uh, for those who follow metric rather than imperial like I do, that's 300 kilograms. The petition was carried by relays of building workers through London streets, accompanied by an elaborate procession, which included seven bands, one of which, by the way, was an off-duty Grenadiers band. Countless flags and banners and a crowd that the Times estimated was 50,000 strong. <clears throat> Excuse me. Arriving outside the House of Commons, the huge decorated box which contained the petition jammed into the doorway. They couldn't get it through into the chamber at House of Commons. So big was it. After attempts to dismantle the doorframe failed, the petition had to be disassembled. Can you imagine? And the sheets were heaped onto the floor of the house 
where they towered above the clerk's car, uh, the clerk's table, on which, in theory, the petition was supposed to be laid. Here's a here's a cartoon uh, from the time. Here's trying to get the charter through the, the door into Parliament. The collection and presentation of the petition went alongside a series of strikes and other actions in workplace up and down the country. The working class was on the move in Britain, and Engels saw it. Here's a photo of a Chartist meeting just south of where I am now. Uh, I'm in Pimlico. This meeting took place in Kennington Park, just to the other side of the River Thames. Look at the scale. Engels took a close interest in the Chartist movement. He regularly wrote articles for their paper, The Northern Star, which was printed and distributed from Leeds, by the way, as a Leeds guy, I'm quite proud of that. And he reportedly visited Leeds to discuss matters with its editor, Vergus O'Connor. Now, Engels, in 1848, wrote something very interesting. It's just a sentence. I think it's worth having a look at because it's going to stay with us for the rest of this lecture. If we can just get it up, thank you. He's writing to the Chartists, but it's an open letter for everybody to read. And he's got a very, very cl uh, clear message in a single sentence. Your great want, he said, is political power. But then he adds, as the means to affect your social emancipation. Now, as we know, the Chartist Six demands really about major political reforms like universal suffrage. And they were intended to allow working class people access to political power. But even today, in 2023, some of those demands are still under attack by the right wing in our society in an attempt to roll back the gains which were made. For example, we see a not so subtle attempt by the Tories to undermine the principle of universal suffrage in the, in the most recent legislation. But here's the point is Engels is an 1848 comment, which is still up on the screen indicates that he wants to go beyond political reform. Remember the Charter's six demands are about changing the way politics works. He, but he wants to go political reform to bring about fundamental social change. That's the point. So we've arrived, therefore, at Engels's identification of the working class as the primary agency, which he believes can bring about those historical changes, which I've just talked about. His book, Therefore, it should be seen as a major intellectual achievement, as well as an economic and sociological uh, um, description of conditions at the time of the highest importance. But understanding the awakening political culture of the English working class movements, then Engels takes the analysis of, of Hegel and of the left Hegelians as his starting point, and he goes beyond both. And here's where we get to, because in, we should note that Engels is writing about the industrial manual. Oh, I should just make this point. Engels is writing about the industrial manual working class in the north of England. And this is an important point I want to make. He and Marx use the term working class or proletariat in a wider sense. I've already said this, but it's just worth re reiterating now, meaning all people who must sell their labor in order to live. And we'll, this will become more relevant as we come into the present day. There's still one further part of the jigsaw which Engels needs to put in place in order that we can understand clearly the intellectual structures which he had begun to put together in his book. And this is the question of what it is that actually drives history forward. Remember, he's wrestling with Hegel, who says ideas drive history forward. and But actually, uh, Hegel's wrong. And Hegel had developed this... Uh, his thoughts about progress being propelled by a dialectic, completing ideas, producing other ideas, which then produce competing ideas. And so the dialectic goes on as we get closer and closer to uh, a more perfect world. This is Hegel's view. <clears throat> Engels and Marx want to get hold of the dialectic where there's contradictions between one force and another, but they are, the contradictions are not ideological. But they're rooted in humanity's social and material conditions. And as it happens, there was a factor which Engels could find close to hand in Manchester. And this was the existence of a class of people who owned and controlled the Manchester factories and whose interests were directly opposed to those of the people they employed. It was in the struggle for supremacy between the employing class 
and the proletariat that Engels and then Marx identified that there could be found the correct answer to Hegel's inverted dialectic. Let me quote Marx. It's actually a, a quote from Marx's book uh, found by Engels, I think in 1888. Marx said, the, the mystification which dialectic suffered in Hegel's hands is standing on its head. It's upside down. In, it's my language now. It's upside down. Marx says it must be turned the right side up if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. Look, I don't want to spend a lot of time going through the details of Engels' book, written when he was 24, as we've heard. You can read it for yourself, and you should read it for yourself. And if you've read it once, you should read it again. It's a very important document. But in his, his 1892 preface to the English translation of his book, remember, it was written in German. Engels, Engels wrote that, wrote, hang on, I've got lost here. Uh, Engels wrote that it's true that an author of 24 years old will not produce a finished work when judged by their older self. But Engels' modesty ought not to deceive us into thinking that he had written a pure description of conditions in early capitalism. What he had actually done was begun to identify the key antagonism which drives much of capitalist development itself, as well as the key to understanding working class agency. And here in a single sentence in 1842, Engels encapsulates this idea Okay, well, what, here's what Engels says. The conditions of the working class is the real basis and point of departure of all social movements at the present time. What he said in 1842 remains true today, as we'll see later on. But look, look, the world has changed hugely since his day. I referred earlier to the virtual end of the factory system in Britain. On the next slide, if I haven't got completely mixed up, yeah, there we are. You can see the number of people working in factories has declined rapidly within a few decades. And with those changes, it's true to say that the democratic structures of our country have changed quite almost beyond recognition. And yet, if Engels somehow was to appear back in material form in Britain today, would he still see that central dialectic, that motivation for history, which he'd identified back in Manchester in 1842? I think he would. The old system still prevails, but in a new shape. Let's just take a quick look at recent developments before we return to Engels near the end of his life. I've wanted you to talk about agency and to accept that the demographic and economic recomposition of what we might call the working class has changed almost beyond recognition. But in a recent survey, when people in Britain were asked what class do they belong to, nearly two thirds of them said that they were working class. And let's be clear, this recomposition has not undermined the ruthless economic dialectic which Engels had described and Marx all those years ago. Wealth and income has been transformed to a massive level. Let's quick, take a quick look at this data that we're going to put in front of you now. Well, the first six lines show the huge explosion of wealth amongst the richest. And look at the last line. It shows what happened while the explosion of wealth of the rich basically accelerated away in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. But in the last line, we see what happened to working people. And we're talking about people who earn a wage or a salary, all working people, all people who work for a living. Their incomes went down by 433 billion pounds um, since the, from the crash up to 2018 in a 10-year period. Wealth being appropriated or expropriated by the rich and the money being taken from everybody else. That's what is really happening. And that is the dialectic in operation. In the recent budget, <clears throat> so we're right up to date now, the OBR estimated that wages and salaries won't even achieve pre-banking crash levels till at least 2026. And yet the wealth of the riches continues to grow. Now, we will see in the right-wing media and elsewhere, the argument made that the rich work hard and that when they increase their wealth, it's the way in which our society rewards enterprise. But that isn't really what's happening, is it? The wealth of the largest corporations of the super rich is accumulated 
on the back of the rest of society, just as Engels had said. Though Engels himself might have revisited Voltaire's famous phrase that, here's Voltaire, good old Voltaire, the comfort of the rich depends on the abundant supply of the poor. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate what is actually happening with the following graph. If we can put it up on the screen, please. What this graph shows <clears throat> is going back to 1955 through for several decades, what you see is the amount of money paid in wage and salaries to workers is going down as a share of the total size of the economy. Now, it's complicated, this, but it's not too complicated. Year on year, you'll see variations. Some years, it's more than in others. There's a big peak, for example, in 1975 at the, in the Labour government, the Wilson Callaghan Labour government. But generally speaking, this long-term downward slope, what does it indicate? It indicates that the amount of money being paid to what we can call the working class is in long-term decline. Where's that money going? Well, we've already seen where that money is going. And the ONS are now telling us that we've seen the sharpest fall in wages in a decade. After this graph finishes, we could continue to be steeper. Now, I want to try to demonstrate what is actually happening in our economy and why it vindicates Engels and Marx in terms of their analysis of how capitalism works by looking very, very briefly at the automobile industry. <clears throat> Let's just put the figures up. What you'll see, if you're a quick reader, <laughs> is that the, uh, the number of people working in car manufacturing in Britain declined from 500,000 to 166,000. <clears throat> Clearly, the number of vehicles produced went down as well, as you'll see. But in the final column to the right, you find that the number of vehicles produced by, by a worker, per worker, working in the industry has more than doubled. So it's clear then that the output of each worker employed in the industry, and this applies right across our economy, is more than twice as high now than it was in 1971. Yet their real wages of, of car workers have not increased to go along with the increased productivity. So what happened to the extra money which was produced by each worker in the shape of more cars? Well, some of it, were, to be fair, was handed over to the consumers of cars, you and I would buy a car at relatively lower prices. But the truth is that the largest part of the extra wealth created by the workers in the industry went to the owners, to the large companies who own the motor, motor automotive um, companies. And that, of course, is true for the whole economy. Now, of course, <clears throat> just moving forward, many commentators will not refute the fact that workers now are much more productive than hitherto. But they will still argue that Engels's case about the immiseration of working class people doesn't apply to our century. Everybody's better off, they say, than they were. They will say these are the conservative apologists with a small so right wing politicians and centrists and establishment figures. They'll say, well, the economy is rising. It's like a rising tide. And when you have a rising tide in the harbour, every boat rises and not just the richest. And of course, we're not going to argue that conditions have failed to change for workers since the early to the mid-19th century. But don't tell me that somehow or other poverty has been jettisoned like a century and a half ago by Britain. It's clear that the situation facing many households th in this year is extremely difficult in Britain. And so I think it's middle-class commentators, I don't want to use the word middle-class too much, but establishment commentators who want to say, well, poverty is a thing of the past. Well, they've mistaken their own rather fortunate circumstances to the circumstances facing millions of other people. There are 14 million people in poverty and millions who have fallen beyond poverty onto the edge of a precipice leading to a calamitous condition which we describe as destitution. I just want to prove this because it'll be disputed. The UN rapporteur on extreme poverty, no less, he visited our country and before COVID, so don't tell me this is about COVID, and before the cost of living crisis, so-called, his conclusions and the language he used were stark. He wrote that Britain today now has what he called a harsh and uncaring ethos. 
and he's guilty of the increasing marginalization, he said, of the working poor and those unable to work. The UN rapporteur said that the DWP, Tory DWP, appears to be designing a digital and sanitized version of the 19th century workhouse, which he said was made infamous by Charles Dickens, but we might add, and by Engels as well. Let me just show you a further line or two from the UN rapporteur. He says the bottom line is that much of the glue which held British society together since the Second World War has been deliberately removed and replaced with a harsh and uncaring ethos. A booming economy, high, highly high employment and a budget surplus have not reversed austerity, a policy which has been pursued more as an ideological than an economic agenda. That's the view of the United Nations, not Engels. And let me just come back to this word destitution, which suddenly appeared earlier when I, I, I mentioned it. A recent study showed that 2.4 million of our fellow citizens had experienced destitution in 2019, including half a million children. These are citizens who lack the very means to provide all or part, part of the following accommodation, food, clothes, heating, or even the capacity to keep clean. And the University of Glasgow estimated that there'd been 330,000 deaths in the seven years running up to COVID, attributable directly to austerity. <clears throat> Excuse me, the lead author of that report says, the figures are not only shocking, but shameful. The tragic thing is that these deaths did not have to happen, in the words of the United Nations, in a society as wealthy as the UK, poverty is a political choice. But perhaps we might go further than the UN guy. We might say, we might agree with Engels that the existence of poverty is actually an inbuilt attribute of this whole capitalist economic system. And even the minutiae of the British tax system we see prioritizes income from wealth over income from property. Why is it that people who work pay a, pay a higher rate of tax than people who earn income from wealth? Here's the uh, here's the quick a quick look at the figures. Well, look, would Engels have recognised any of these phenomena? You bet he would. You bet he would. A tax on the income um, incomes of employees generate large scale poverty, even destitution, alongside an explosion of wealth. They are the very things which Engels saw in abundance in Manchester and which remain visible today. And so now let's return back to this celebrated idea of working class agency, which I'm insisting on in this lecture. Towards, his end, towards the end of his life, Engels noted and celebrated a huge new wave of resistance amongst working people. There was an outbreak of strikes. Engels dies in uh, 1895. In the early 1890s, there's a massive wave of strikes led by what was called the new unions. Here's Engels. The new unions, he said, were founded at a time when faith in the eternity of the wages system itself was severely shaken. Their founders and promoters, that is of the new unions, were socialists, either consciously or by feeling. That's 18, 1890s. Now, today, here in Britain, we see a wave of strikes, which is increasingly strong as larger groups of workers take action. More than two and a, more than 2.4 million working days were lost to strikes in 2022, if the word lost is appropriate. Postal workers were among the first, as we all know, along with railway employees and a whole range of other different uh, um, occupational categories. But what's been striking, I don't know if you all share, or if anybody shares this view with me, is the sight of workers in what had hitherto been regarded as so-called middle-class or professional occupations, seeing barristers go on strike. Perhaps it was a bit unexpected, it was. University lecturers, junior doctors, teachers, nurses, all taking a collective action. And the evidence of these actions taking place in this third decade of the 21st century says two things. First, as we've already marked, remarked, the term working class cannot simply be applied to factory employees or to those in manual trades. Secondly, that the squeeze on all those sections of workforce has been ferocious, as we see the huge transfer of wealth and income into the pockets of the wealthiest and the big corporations. Take a look quickly at this table. 
um, which shows the turnout by uh, category, by worker category, and then the number of people who voted for strike action, if, various different sectors. If you look at the last one on the right-hand side, these are the junior doctors. Nearly 100% of the junior doctors voted, and of those, over three quarters of them voted for strike. This is quite a remarkable development in my, in my view in, in modern Britain. I'm going to return back one final time, I think, to the 1890s, just to make one important point. And putting aside the question of how successful that wave of strikes was then, it is the case, though, that the movement of working class action at that time had profound, almost revolutionary implications for the way in which we did politics in Britain. Let me exemplify it with an event which occurred in my own constituency in the mining town of Featherston, just two years before Engels died. <clears throat> On the mighty Yorkshire coalfield at that time, there was a wave of strikes because the bosses were doing what they always do. They were cutting the miners' wages in order to protect their own financial interests. And the miners in Featherston and elsewhere also did what they always used to do. They fought back. Now, there isn't time to give a full account of what happened, but there was an armed confrontation in the town. And the British Army confronted a large crowd. It ended up with troops firing live rounds into the crowd, killing two and injuring many more. You could hear from the crowd people shouting, we'd rather be shot than simply be hungered to death. Now, why is a small, not a, not a small incident, but a local incident in what is now my constituency so important? Well, the Featherston, Featherston massacre, along with other events, proved to be one of those decisive moments in the history of our political structures. Up to that point, many working class voters had voted for the Liberal Party, as had most of the trade union figures. There was an inquest about the two dead men. One was held elsewhere in Yorkshire, and the inquest decided that the, that the miner had been killed by justifiable homicide. But then there was a second inquest in Featherston, the town where the massacre had happened. And the jury there came to a completely different conclusion. They blamed the lack of adequate policing and troops overreaction. Here is the grave you can visit today. The last time British troops used firearms against a crowd in England. Following that decision, um, following that decision at the inquest, there was a huge scandal through the country. It even broke through into the august halls of the House of Commons. They had to admit to introduce a parliamentary inquiry, which was finally agreed by the Liberal Home Secretary. Asquith, Herbert Asquith. Here's the thing. The Liberal Party began to lose votes in working class communities up and down the country. It was the Liberal government, after all, which had moved 250 armed troops onto the Yorkshire coalfield, basically supporting the employers. Socialists from across the country, as well as trade unionists, working people everywhere, then began to harass Asquith wherever he went. And as we know, as I've said, the slow demise of the Liberal Party as a receptacle for working class voters had set in. Within a decade, the Labour Party had begun to develop as an independent party of working class voters, separate from the Liberals. And its roots laying part in the struggles of the 1890s, which Engels had seen, which I've just described. There's another moment in our history, which I want to refer to. It's the 1979 winter, winter of discontent. And then there was a great minor strike of 84, 85. I was first elected as a councillor in the middle of the strike. But what's interesting and important is that the winter of discontent and the minor strike then had an impact upon Britain's political structures, just as the 1890 strikes did as well. But in that case, in this case, the 79 to 85 period, what happened was our political structures changed, but in a reactionary way with the emergence of Thatcherism and neoliberal economics. So we've already noted that 
at the, this present moment in time, we've seen an increasingly large wave of industrial disputes. Now, whatever your view of the pay settlements that may or may not now be reached to settle these strikes as appears to be about happening, you might wonder if there will be a large scale political ramification which emerges from the present moment, just as there was in the 1890s in a progressive way and in the 1970s in a reactionary way. I wonder if you all would agree with me that we do need to transform our politics. So many people feel they're excluded from decision-making. It's often said that the structures we use are there to promote simply the interests of the wealthy and the big corporations. How to disagree? Let me just give you one figure. There were 100 manual workers in the House of Commons in 1979. Now there are only 10 of us. And in the last parliament, there were only two Labour MPs who'd been nurses. But if that profession was proportionally represented in Parliament, there ought to be at least 13 nurse MPs. Uh, but in the meantime, the number of MPs with a business background now stands at just about 200. And there are further 200 uh, MPs with what the Commons describes as professional backgrounds. The simple fact is that our politics doesn't work. It needs profound change. Most people know it in their heart of hearts. Here's what I think. We need a democratic revolution en route to wider emancipation. So let me leave you, I've just about finished with one final brief memory. Back in 1971, I attended one of the largest working class demonstrations which I've ever seen, and I think which has ever occurred in the country. Over the hill, I remember seeing, coming into view, one trade union baroner after another. But the recollection of one of them has stayed with me ever since that day, all those years ago. The words were simple, but the meaning was profound. Here's the banner itself. We found it. The past, it says, we inherit. The future, we build. So let's honour Engels. Let's learn from our past. Let's apply his methods. But above all, let's build a better future out of the current wave of strikes. And thank you for your patience. Thank you, John. And that was brilliant. Thank you so much. And uh, really fascinating. Thank you. And um, thank you also to everyone attending, um, especially, as I would say, to those donating, including Kevin, Gordon, Julie, Maureen and Heather. It's really great to be able to tell you, John, that we've had got over 500 people joining us live right now across our platforms, including mm -hmm. from all over Britain and indeed the world. And I'll just read out a few of the places we're joined from. Um, Durham, Paisley, Frome, Christchurch, Corby, Marlow, Shepton Mallet, Staffordshire, Cornwall, Catford, London, Liverpool, Basingstoke, East Lancaster, Hove, and then also people here from the USA, Indonesia and Spain. So a particular welcome to those comrades. Um, I hope there's a few Yorkshire people there, by the way. I'm <laughs> <a> <laughs> uh, um, let's uh, go for our first two questions that we've had come in tonight. And okay. one is on zoom from Anne she says uh, solidarity from Oxford and thank you for this lecture why do you think the wealth tax is a topic so rarely discussed and how can we put this on every agenda and then we have a good question as well from Logan who's an NEU activist um, who's obviously been doing his homework and reading some Engels before the lecture who mm -hmm. asks Engels once wrote it is folly to hope for an isolated solution of the housing question whilst mm -hmm. under the capitalist system to what extent do you agree with that so are we happy to do those two ones briefly first John I didn't quite catch the first one so the first one from Anne in Oxford is why do you think wealth tax is a topic rarely okay, discussed well okay, okay. and how can we put this issue of wealth on every agenda Okay, well, on uh, look, I think it's over the years told me a lot that Labour and progressive politicians generally, let's just not just say Labour, focused on redistribution of income. Think about that. So taking money from those who earn large amounts of money and passing it across to poorer people through various different means. Of course, that's a right thing to do. But focusing purely on income, redistribution income by tax, it doesn't really tackle the underlying problem, does it, which is the ownership of wealth. We don't tax income from wealth 
to the same extent as we tackle income from work. And that is a big mistake. So I think probably three years ago, we began, my office began to write about a wealth tax. We published a document, which I think is hopefully on our website somewhere, if anybody's interested, 70 odd pages long. And what we show is that the growth in wealth, as I've described, is extraordinary in recent years. Absolutely extraordinary. The thousand richest people in Britain. Don't take my words for it. Don't take the Daily Mirror or the Morning Star or any left-leaning newspaper. I found the figures uh, from Rupert Murdoch, because he publishes the thousand richest people in Britain, the rich list, in the Sunday Times. And I think it's to make us all feel jealous that we're not rich. But actually what it does is it provides you with important data about what's happening to the rich. They are gaining billions of pounds in additional wealth while people are struggling, as I've described. So we do need a wealth tax. There's a number of ways of doing this. and But I think it's become increasingly common that people talk about it. And it's right that we do we deal with that. On the question of housing and the quote from Engels, <clears throat> here's another interesting thing, which the, by the way, on the wealth tax, the left used to talk about it. Socialists did speak about taxing wealth and tackling wealth. After all, we live in a capitalist society, so why wouldn't we talk about capital? But when it comes about land, a similar thing. It was originally a massive demand of the left, of socialists in our country, to take ownership of the land upon which houses are built. Now, I think it's complicated these days to try to come up with a single model for um, you know, public ownership of the whole of the land. But we ought to be having a close interest in it because it does determine a lot about um, housing. As it happens, I'm a building worker and, I, and in my time I've worked on building many, many houses for people. It's a matter of great pride that those houses will be there with families in them probably 200 years after I've, I'm six feet under. But the point is this, the cost of employing plumbers, builders, plasterers, carpenters, not, is a small fraction of the total cost of a house. A lot of it goes into the value of the land underneath the house, and people are making huge profits from it. So we do need to look carefully about who owns the land, especially development land, and how we can get more houses there without it costing the earth. Now, whilst um, Jeremy was leader, I commissioned a report by George Monbiot and, his, and a group of advisors because I'm interested in the land uh, as an economic uh, factor of production, but also because it's important for the environment and so on and so forth. They produced probably the most radical document that the Labour Party's seen in many, many years. It's called Land for the Many. I'm proud to have commissioned it, and I'm proud to call George Monbiot a friend and a, and a colleague of mine. Um, if you uh, are interested in it, it's called Land for the Many. It's available, um, I think, online. And we'll probably put a link on it on uh, through Twitter or something if anybody's interested. Uh, right, so I hope they've helpfully responded to those two questions. Thanks, John. Um, I'm just going to take this opportunity on that report you did with Monbiot. I think that would be discussing those ideas would be a great idea for some further yeah. work yeah. and maybe a future event in this summer's Arise sure. Festival. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm just going to read out some comments and do some shout outs for the audience. Um, welcome Maureen on Zoom who says thank you so much John, an excellent lecture. Also our regular attendee Nina on Zoom who says fascinating insp and inspiring, thank you so much. Carol on Zoom who says it was a light in the darkness of present day labour. Um, and again on Zoom, Vin and Gustin, who both say how great it was to render the image of the Durham's minus gala and one of them raising the importance of the gala and the banners of the NUM, which I totally agree with. Um, our next and final questions will go back to the question of industrial action. Um, mm. And if when you answer those, John, you could sum up as well. That would be a brilliant oh. end to the event. Um, before them, just one final quick ask to everyone again to donate <laughs> £20 or what you can so we can keep doing more of these lectures and also keep your eyes going as the biggest online events platform on the left. It's been so worthwhile to do this more in-depth discussion. Um, so I'll go on now to the final two questions for you, John, um, both relating to industrial action and strikes. Okay. And asks on Facebook, you talked about the strikes in the UK, but what about the actions taken internationally, notably in Spain? And he also mentions France, which um, obviously in the news today, quite dramatic, but there's other ones as well, of course, Sri Lanka, 
recently yeah. a general strike as well. And then Ian asks, and that's more reference here to Britain, I think, do you think the current wave of strikes will actually change the balance of power? If not, what instead can we take from them? So two final questions about the importance of the strikes and the industrial action more globally, I suppose. Well, look, I, th- I think I don't know if I managed to ingrain into my lecture the central point which I wanted to make, starting off with this idea that, you know, workers and poor people are just passive recipients of uh, goods handed down from on high. And I don't accept that. As I said, you know, people are active in their everyday lives. I described what happens down the pit and I described a little bit about what had happened in the clothing factory. But there are times when people are relatively quiescent and quiet. Sometimes they're gathering the strength because they've been in a fight and they lost or they didn't have a great win. And there are times when, you know, when push comes to shove, people are going to fight back. And we go, we oscillate between those positions. We're now in a position, I think, where people have had enough. And they are saying, we've had enough. We're not putting up with this any longer. You know, the prices are going up and up and up. And so are profits. And so are the wealth of the richest people in our society. But we are getting bugger all. And it's harder and harder to survive, pay for the kids. You know, we have children in my area that the parents can't put clothes on their back on shoes on their feet. because And yet they're at work, those parents. And they've had enough. So at those moments, a social crisis happens and people begin to fight back. And that's, I think, where we are now. And it's quite amazing, as I said, to see some of the professions also uh, out there. These actions um, are contested. And when it comes to settling, trade union leaders and negotiators, they have to work out how far they can push things and how far as well the people who are supporting them, the strikers, can go, given the fact you don't earn money when you're on strike. So there's a series of settlements taking place. I think Rishi Sunak's decided he doesn't want to take on the power of the whole of the different sections of the working class, so they're quietly settling these. But I think things will have changed as a result. And a new generation of people who for the first time maybe even were in a union or took a strike action or even thought that we, us, ordinary folk, can make changes in the way our country or our firm works, those ideas, they begin to work through. And I've been on picket lines. Many of you will be. Talk to people. Listen to what they're saying. You know, people saying, well, I've never, I've, I've paid my union dues, but I never knew what a union was. Now saying, do you know what? I feel better because we're taking action and we're fighting back, and that's a good thing. I think a new generation of socialists and trade unions will emerge from the present the present uh, problems. But here's the thing. And remember what Engels said in his letter to the uh, to the Chartist. He said, yeah, you, we fight for a change, but he said what we need to do in the end is, is lead to uh, emancipation, economic and social emancipation. And it's our job as socialists, and we've tried to do it tonight with this lecture, to give an analysis, a description of how our society works so that people don't think it was just our boss, but they can actually see it's a systemic issue in the way in the way in which our wage system works itself and that's our job i think and i'm so pleased that um you know arise exists and and matt and all your team brilliant people well my final point is this <clears throat> is this just happening in britain is it is it just a local phenomenon you know particularly a reactionary tory government well we do have a reactionary tory government we're getting close to a form of fascism in my opinion but this is a worldwide phenomenon. The ruling, well, the capitalists, the ruling classes, you might call them, are on the march. They're trying to push down people's wages and cut this, uh, these public services, whether it's education, hospitals, or the pensions. And it's interesting to see in, in Madrid, two million people went on the streets to defend uh, public health, which was being privatized by a right-wing regime in the region of, of Madrid. It gives me great encouragement to see that. 
And then in Paris, well, look, I think it's it's very difficult there. You can see that. But like, you've got a government which is simply saying, we're not going to listen to parliament. We can't get a majority. We're just going to impose things on them and look at the reaction that's taken place. But as you say, in Sri Lanka and elsewhere, I just wonder at some point whether um, Arise or some other organisation can't get together at least a European-wide conversation of this kind to so we, we can share information because th their fight is our fight and our fight is theirs. And that's how I see it. And I think hopefully I'm this, everybody on this call are internationalists and on the side of progress against uh, the reactionary forces that we all face. But look, Matt, thank you so much. Um, it's been a great exercise. I've enjoyed doing it. I hope I didn't lose anybody with my little bit of um, Hegelian stuff in the middle. I tried to keep it <laughs> straightforward. And no doubt we'll do more of this in the future. Thanks so much indeed for coming to everybody who's on who's on tonight. Thank you, John. And that's it from us. If you missed any of it, we'll be sending everyone who registered in advance a video on YouTube and also on Twitter where you can watch the full thing back. And that will also include a link to John's excellent slides. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Bye.